Welcome to Startup to Scale, a podcast by Food Bevy. I'm your host, Jordan Buckner. Join me as I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs, seasoned industry experts, and everyone in between as we unlock the keys to growing from startup to scale. Hey everyone, Jordan with the Startup to Scale podcast here. For today's episode, we're talking again about manufacturing, but going a little bit deeper into that intermediate level. And I'm doing so with my friend and guest, David Boyle, who's a operations consultant, co-founder of Sherpa CPG. And really he helps founders find and build great co-packer relationships and manage that supply chain as you grow. So something that's definitely of high concern for brands now. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Happy to help. Awesome. So for this conversation that I just mentioned, we're going to be going a little bit deeper into working with uh, co-manufacturers and co-packers. If anyone wants kind of an intro to working in this world, check out our episode 24 with Ashley Sutherfield. It's a great kind of intro to this space. Um, but for this conversation, we're going to go a little bit deeper. So David, talk to me a little bit about um, what problems arise once a company's already been kind of had a couple of runs with a contract manufacturer, they kind of have the basics going on. Like what are some of the problems that come up or things that they need to consider? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, once that relationship starts to evolve and now both parties realize like, okay, we're going to be working together. And the contract manufacturer has had a couple of runs to understand how much labor how much time and resources and what are we going to really need to apply and spend on to make this product successfully? Um, it starts to get more to that point where that relationship starts to solidify. Uh, this is now around the area where they're open to doing co-packer operating agreements and starting to really create more of an annual projection of what the partnership is going to look like on a, on a year-to-year basis. I love that. So I know a lot of myself included, when we were working with manufacturers, most did not even want a contract because they didn't want to be locked in. They didn't know if they could make it or not or whatever. Um, but when putting together that co-packing operating agreement, what are the things that from a brand side that should go in there? And what are the things that you should really advocate for? Oh yeah. And I would say, I mean, a lot of co-packers will be very hesitant unless it's a very big or reputable brand to make any co-packer operating agreement until they had a chance to do at least one production run together. Many times by the end of that production run, both parties have realized they don't want to work with each other anymore. So that, <laughs> you know, that's the end of it. Uh, and um, But once they get to that point and both parties have realized, okay, we're going to move forward. I would say, you know, the most important things of the co-packer operating agreement would be uh, first and foremost, defining the product specification. Let's both agree, both parties agree on what a successful product means. Um, who owns what? Just a just an idea of, of literally who owns what from the formula, any packaging components, uh, raw materials, kind of et cetera. And then thirdly, starting to get towards an annual supplier um, projection, which will help you know, both parties. It's very tough with a lot of brands that I work with because they're just you know, getting into retailers, just starting to get the velocity, and they're not exactly sure what the annual projection is going to be. But having that uh, piece kind of dialed in helps the co-packer uh, a lot. I remember when uh, 
doing these projections, right, with T-squares, I, we'd often look at the numbers, we're like, well, you know, we're pitching to this 200 store chain, so if we get them, then there'll be this, and if we get this other, like, 400 store chain, then we'll have, like, this, but, like, those aren't locked in at the, <laughs> at the beginning, so we always, like, overinflated, and I think as well, when we went to, when we were working with manufacturers, um, it was like, hey, we actually need, like, a half of what we said we kind of would need or maybe like cut a whole production run out occasionally right and that just like sets bad expectations from the beginning like some of change is reasonable but when you're like below their minimums it gets really tough right oh yeah and i would just even uh you know have that whole conversation with the co-packer you know really even just uh bringing them in as a quote-unquote partner and letting them know you know we're pitching to this chain this chain is this many doors you know we're doing this many units per store per week at x chain so because of that, we think it's a range. At a minimum, we'll run, I don't know, a million X, you know, cans a year. And at a maximum, we'll run 2.5 million cans a year. And it really depends on, you know, what happens. I think generally, if you can get to doing one production run a quarter at their MOQ, at their one eight-hour shift, that is to that area where you start to make co-packers, uh, I guess, happy or, or where they can start to schedule things around your business. I like that as a as a baseline. So a lot of people ask, like, what is that kind of amount to start building that relationship? So I think that's totally reasonable. Um, in the agreement that you would put out for manufacturer, and I always tell brands, like, even if they won't do like a formal contract, at least almost have like a term sheet so that you have all the agreements in the same place. Um, what are some of the things that you can agree on in terms of like spoilage, who pays for um you know, any defective product, any recalls, what are some of the baselines to talk about there? Oh yeah, definitely. And I think even taking a step back from that, how it's framed will depend on whether you're operating in a turnkey or tolling environment. So if you're operating turnkey where you're just placing a purchase order for a finished product, like a nutrition bar package ready to go, and they're supplying everything, that would change the terms a little bit versus if you're supplying all the raw materials in specific packaging and they're just tolling it through their facility. Um, a couple of commonalities would still be around, uh, to your point, who uh, would share kind of like liability for any spoiled product? What would be the specification and the ranges of what is good product within spec versus bad product? So in the event that there is, you know, a production where it's kind of iffy, you can look at the co-packer operating agreement and decide this is in spec, which means we will pay for it, or this is not in spec, which means we need you to, you know, rerun it. Awesome. I like those things there. Um, the other thing that I hear brands talk about is, right, like when you're starting out, you're almost finding anyone that can make your product at the lowest MOQ because you don't need to run 10,000 units if you only have two or three stores. Um, and so I see manufacturers almost like uh, graduate to different levels of contract manufacturers as they grow. Have you worked with any of your brands like on that? And how do you typically help them navigate that process? Oh yeah, and it, it's all dependent on the product format, but it does happen a lot of times that Sometimes the first co-packer their brand is working with is just the first co-packer that said yes, basically. Um, the first co-packer that said yes might be uh, the least equipped, but they have the capacity, which is why they said yes in the first place. Um, generally, you'll have basically a bridge co-packer 
that's maybe smaller. They do a lot of different specialties, but they're not necessarily uh, an expert in one narrow specialty. And as you start to raise the MOQs and get to larger co-packers, they offer less uh, capabilities, but they're more specialized in that one item. Um, and it really depends, but for someone who's doing a slow gradual growth, it is almost a necessary rite of passage that you're going to go through a bridge co-packer, you're going to get, uh, you know, proof of market, you're going to get product scale, you're going to go through all of these kind of hiccups at the bridge co-packer, and all of those process changes and improvements you're going to take to the next co-packer that would have said no if you showed them the process steps from when you started. And then you'll be at a medium-sized tier as you start to get to nationwide distribution, you'll move that to a large, super specialized co-packer where you'll really start to see you know, that, uh, those price breaks that everyone kind of talks about at scale. Do you see companies working with multiple manufacturers for the same product, like having the West coast and the East coast operation? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. And it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to manage because depending on the product still, I mean, one, it's difficult to just have them taste exactly the same. You have two different groups making uh, making the product and many times different raw materials. Um, if it's something with water, just literally the water uh, in one city versus the water in a different city is going to taste a little bit different. Um, so it's always tough to maintain uniformity. And that's why sometimes people will split it up by skew instead. Maybe we run three skews here and three skews here would just keep things consistent. Um, but eventually almost all groups will have to go bi-coastal, especially in today's day and age because freight is at an all-time high. Making things in New York and sending it to Los Angeles or vice versa is just becoming so, so, so expensive. Um, so people will always end up with bi-coastal manufacturing at some point. And really you just want to be honest with both co-packers is the best way. They, they understand it as well. Uh, and they realize you know, that that is a, a part of, of doing business. So trying to hide it from a co-packer um, is always a little bit of a red flag because they will eventually find out. Um, and then you just want to be at enough scale that you're not such a small customer of both groups. You want to be doing enough business that your name and your when you call over, it holds some sort of weight uh, to both businesses. You kind of want to wait till you get to a little bit of volume before you do that. Yeah. And I see that happening a lot with like frozen businesses or refrigerated where the, you know, that extra shipping is a whole lot, even some beverage who will like do that, you know, less so as a concern for like popcorn or energy bars, those are fairly inexpensive to ship, but yeah, it's really those like frozen and refrigerated products. Yeah. Um, interesting. So another thing that I want to get into, which is I experienced this problem as well as, um, well, two things actually. First is, have you seen operations that will have a internal manufacturing facility, maybe like a small 3,000, 5,000 square foot facility where they do some of their own production and then outsource other products to a contract manufacturer? Um, not as much, I would say. I mean, there's some groups I work with where there may be a special specialized in one raw material that they make, and then they want to put that, uh, you know, ingredient into lots of different product lines. Um, but Typically, what I see is someone who's making something in-house or at a commercial kitchen level, and then they try to scale that to a contract manufacturer. And there's always that difficulty of what you're making uh, in-house with your manufacturing capabilities versus what a manufacturer will make with their high-velocity machinery capabilities. 
is that inevitably the product you know, will need to change. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm having a conversation on LinkedIn about this right now, of like some brands doing a little bit of like a mix where some of their like high volume SKUs, they'll work with a co-packer on. And then the smaller like test runs or flavors, they still keep almost like a test kitchen production facility so they can do smaller batch production. So it allows for that customization. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that idea because, you know, most manufacturers don't want to do small batch. Yeah. So, you know, not bothering them with it, letting them go at just high velocity and getting the best price break that they can for you, for the company is a, a win-win, I would say. Yeah. And then how, um, how complicated does it get when brands start to expand to multiple product categories and they may require different manufacturers? Um, do you suggest brands like that's okay, or is too much of a headache? Should they stick with like the capabilities with one manufacturer that can do multiple items? Um, how do you kind of help advise around that? Oh yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to start, if a brand is able to get multiple product lines out of one co-packer, that is the golden grail. That is awesome. Cause you're just taking all of the resources towards managing that one contract manufacturer, that relationship all of the raw materials that you ship inbound, all of the finished product you ship outbound, and you're just uh, having a multiplier effect on that by doing another product line out of the same manufacturer. It also helps just from a relationship building aspect. So if someone can do two product lines and continue to innovate out of that same manufacturer, that is like level grade A. That's like the, the top, top of the top. Uh, if you can't and you start working with other contract manufacturers, that's totally normal. Um, you know, many beverage companies will have a liquid and then they'll move into an RTD, you know, powder, and then inevitably they'll have to go to another manufacturer. And uh, that's fine. I think the more that you can start to move potentially to a turnkey environment where the new manufacturers are handling some of the raw material packaging, any of the procurement possible, that'll help you just as a startup or small and growing emerging brand to not have to deal with all of the operations of all of those, you know, raw materials, you know, most large brands, when you think of like the Unilevers and Pepsi's and one out of the world, they're able to manage hundreds of contract manufacturers, but they do so because they manage no raw materials. They do everything turnkey. So they're just dealing with the manufacturers themselves. Is that a tip that you suggest that like to work with turnkey manufacturers as much as possible, or does it really vary? Um, it varies. I would say to get as close to a partial turnkey as possible, you know, try to work with the co-packers, see what they're already bringing in. Um, and then of course, inevitably, especially in the natural food sector, you're going to have very specific ingredients that the co-packer certainly not bringing in. Uh, and then your customer specific uh, packaging is something that'll also be what you bring in. But if there's anything that they can order on your behalf, they'll probably appreciate that because they already have the controls of scheduling and getting their certificate of analysis and uh, when they're going to order, when they want it to be at the plant. Um, so working with them to try to have them bring in a, as much as possible uh, usually uh, helps out in the long run. Awesome. And then what major problems and supply chain issues are you seeing brands and manufacturers face because of the, you know, because of COVID right now? Yeah. I mean, the main thing I would say is slow. <laughs> Everything's slow. Um, you know, it's always been the case that you have contract manufacturers that are 
probably not the best from a customer service account management perspective for new brands. And um, now there you've got very short staffed plants, very short staffed warehouses, and you're still having a huge influx and in innovation in the CBG category. So there's the same amount of you know inbound responses and demand and people trying to get stuff made, but you've got plants that might be shut down for weeks at a time because of huge you know COVID outbreaks, which just happened to me, you know, just just recently with different plants. So I would say the main thing is just slow. Uh, another one is many people, you know, are will design products that are very specific, and then they'll start reaching out to co-packers and trying to find that specific thing. You know, what I would recommend in a post-pandemic supply chain or, or whatever you would call that is, uh, you know, start to develop the product with the co-packer. Don't make this final thing. I know it's going to be in this eight ounce, you know, bottle and it's going to do this, it's going to do this, this, exactly. And now I'll look for a co-packer to make it. Because um, that may have worked in the past, but now if there's only one or two co-packers that can make that um, and you have low you know, supplier diversity and there's not a ton of co-packers that make that one product, you're, uh, you're going to be you know, building a, a sand, uh, like a castle on sand, basically. It's not a great way to start. Yeah, I found that out the hard way as well. And just like this idea that I thought that there's going to be someone who could make you know our product at scale no matter what we did and i found out the hard way that either there there weren't many we found like three and only one of them had capacity and we still would have had to make like a I think 50 to a hundred thousand dollar investment because the tooling for that equipment was so specialized to what we were doing because it was made on a, a rotary molder that it was just like, ugh, like another cost that we had to incur. So yeah, I, I absolutely love all those tips and save you, right. There's always enough headaches and starting a company and starting a food company, right? Like don't make things harder on yourself just for the sake of making it harder. Yeah, exactly. Cause I would say the main thing is that there's just less co-packers bringing on, uh, you know, new business. And so I hate relationships where I go in and I go, all right, here's a co-packer that can make this product. And I don't know any other co-packer that can make it. So the leverage is totally lopsided, you know, and, and those co-packers know it, you know, they may not say, it, but they know we're the only one that can make this super obscure product at this super low, you know, volume. And they'll kind of, you know, treat you accordingly. So I like to have a little leverage and know, all right, things don't work out with this guy. I've got three other people I could call. So it's a little bit of more customer to customer relationship. Definitely agree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, David, it's so much having you on. Thanks for all the valuable tips today. This was amazing. If anyone wants to get in touch, you know, can reach out to David. I'll put all his info in the show notes. Um, definitely a great person to talk to. And you've been super helpful just in being open to having conversation with founders and helping them talk through their issues. So um, definitely reach out to David if you have any questions about supply chain operations or manufacturing.